Welcome to Fruitful and Multiplying, a podcast from the Jewish Fertility Foundation. I'm your host, Ilana Frank. The first commandment in the Bible is to be fruitful and multiply. But what if, due to infertility, that path isn't so straightforward? This is a podcast about the fertility path less traveled. From the inspiring and the inspired, and the cutting-edge technology and science that continues to evolve to make it all possible. All right, here we go. Pink walls in a maternity ward might seem harmless to some. We often stereotypically associate pink with women, and women stereotypically become mothers in maternity wards, hence their exclusionary name. However, society is beginning to recognize that gender is more complicated than pink and blue. Tristan Reese is helping extend such recognition to reproductive spaces. He is an author, consultant, and social justice advocate for the LGBTQ community. Tristan is perhaps most well-known for his pregnancy as a trans man in which he gave birth to his first biological child, Leo. Tristan and his partner also have two adopted children, Haley and Riley. I am so excited that you're here today, Tristan. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yay. All right. We're going to get into it. I said all my nice stuff already. So let's just start with your story. Who are you and where did all this start? Why are you on? Why do you think you're on and invited to this podcast? Well, that's your job to tell me. But um, my guess is, is that I've had a, you know, a pretty, it's a pretty unique fertility and family building journey as a transgender man myself. I have two adopted kids. I have one child that I gave birth to. And I, I mean, my guess is as your work continues to expand to include even more members of the LGBTQ plus community, so too do you want you know, everyone who's involved in your work to expand their understanding of how my community might form their families in, in all the many diverse and varied ways, uh, which is usually how it happens for us. Right on. You got it. So let's start from the beginning. Um, And again, we're still learning. I apologize if I say something wrong, but correct me. So we're we're we actually have somebody coming into our organization. We're now a staff of 12 and we're doing a training with an organization called Keshet. I don't know if you've heard of them. It's a Jewish. Okay, so we're really excited. So in the meantime, I guess, when did you Uh, begin identifying as a trans man? Yeah. um, Well, for me, I really, I'm from a very small town, very conservative town. I'm going to be 41 this year. So that kind of gives you a sense of like, okay, 30 years ago, what was it like in small town America next to an Air Force base? Wasn't great, um, either culturally, but I think more importantly, I just didn't have any words for this feeling that I had that maybe there was something going on with me. You know, I just didn't seem to be as comfortable in my body with my gender as everyone else was around me. Um, It's like adolescence, it isn't fun for anybody, but if it was a contest for how, who had it worst, I would probably win. Um, And so I didn't, I didn't come out really until I was 19 or 20. Um, I just thought that I was broken for all those years, that there was just something wrong with me that was probably never going to get fixed. Um, so I think many people are like, oh, no, I'm trans. For me, it was like, oh, yes, I'm, I'm just trans. Um, and so once I had just been introduced to the community and had just the, that basic language, there is a word for this thing 
there is a way that I can talk about it finally. It was very freeing. Um, yeah. So like when I was like 19 or 20 is when I started to come out, uh, when I started to transition and and you're going to learn this with Cachette and you probably know it already. Not every transgender person transitions medically or hormonally. You don't have to transition to be considered trans. For me, transitioning was something I wanted to do. I knew that that was going to bring me the piece that I needed to be able to just live the rest of my life. I love, love that. So talk to us, what is what does that really look like? Like in the day-to-day of transitioning, what does that look like, especially if you're not yet medically transitioning? Yeah, well, that that year or two between when I knew I was trans and began my transition was really awful for me. Um, it's hard to explain to someone who's not trans what it is like to know I am a man and to have the world be like, mm, but you're not though. And to have my, for me to have my voice not sound the way that I wanted, uh, you know, for, for me to present, I'm dressed in the way that I want, but I still look like, you know, a, a tomboy, like a very boyish girl. There's not much else I could do at that point. Um, so that was really hard. The world just didn't quite have a space for me. Um, and that that was one of the primary drivers of my transition was to be able to navigate the world, not be distracted by being called the wrong pronoun or name or that kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, and and our, our listeners can't see, but you have a full beard. You, you are a man. You look like a man. When did when did all that happen? Yeah, I mean. Gradually, then suddenly, uh, you know, when you, I started taking testosterone around age 19 or 20. Um, and it was really, it's a slow process in the same way that puberty is slow. Menopause is slow, right? Any time that hormones are introduced to the body as the body gets sort of used to them and adapts slowly, um, much slower than I thought. But that's also why when we talk about you know, transgender adolescents and transition um, when they're old enough to make the decision to go on hormones uh, with the support of their family. It's a slow process. So really, any time in the first year, I could have said, this isn't right for me. And maybe I would always have those three chin hairs. But, you know, the most of those things that started to happen, my voice, um, the sort of redistribution of fat in my body, it would have gone back to how it was before. So it was it was very slow um, and also not great uh, emotionally, physically. It's puberty and menopause at the same time. So voice dropping, hot flashes, acne, mood swings, all everything bundled into one awful package. And that should tell you how committed I was to transition, that I was willing to deal with all of that in order to be able to, again, just get rid of that distraction of, of people not seeing me the way that I am so that I could just move on, do other things. Gotcha. Okay. So at what stage do you meet your partner, Biff? You're very public about all of this. So I, I've learned a little bit and I met you before. Where does he come in to all of this? Many years later. Um, I had already been okay. transitioned, I think for eight years when we met, um, maybe seven, but you know, it's our story is unique in that I think people are more used to you meet someone, you get married, then you're like, oh my gosh, I'm trans and you transition with them and they have to deal with that. No, Biff has always known me as Tristan. Um, actually, it's funny because Biff changed his name while we were together. And so it, it was more like I had to deal with the change. He didn't have to deal with my change. Um, yeah, but that was many, many years later. I was 
full on into my work as an LGBTQ political organizer, traveling the country, helping communities that were facing anti-gay or anti-trans attacks, um, teaching them how to organize, how to talk to voters, how to be, build big teams of volunteers, tell those stories. Um, yeah, I was well into the movement when we when we met. And at that point, I really had kind of given up on love in that way that only like someone in their mid-20s can. You know, uh-huh. looking back, I'm like, I was a baby. Come on, you know. I did that too. I get it. I was living in Manhattan and I went to one too many singles party, was dating like crazy. I was 28 and I literally walked into my last party and I was like, I'm out of here. People thought I was crazy. I hopped on a plane, moved to Atlanta, and I met my husband that day because I just gave up. Um, yeah. I get it. Yeah. And in a way, mine is a little bit opposite. Like I had given up. But I was in Kalamazoo, Michigan at the time for work. And I called up my boss and I said, listen, I can't keep traveling the country. My home base was New York City. Hard to meet people in New York City, which I know is going to run counter to what people think is true because there's so many people. But like there's so many people. There's too many people. Um, and I, I did. I called my boss. I was like, I want a car, a dog and a boyfriend. I want to move somewhere where I can do those things. I'm thinking maybe L.A. I've lived there before. I know people. Um, And he said, one last campaign, finish out Kalamazoo, then we'll move to you to L.A. And I think within six weeks of moving to L.A., I I met Biff and we got married a few years later. And then how soon in your love romance did you start talking about kids? Was that a conversation? (laughs) Um, uh, I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was like a. For, I don't know, for gay couples, that's just not an inevitability. You know, it wasn't quite what I've heard from the straight people in my life that like, that's just like, you know, that that's the path that you're probably headed towards. Um, Obviously, life throws roadblocks up, as you know, very well, you may think, yes, we're just going to knock out some kids in a few years. Well, that might not be quite as easy as you think. Um, But for LGBTQ folks, it's even more, uh, you know, not inevitable, I guess. So maybe casually. And certainly, you know, Biff was always a caretaker in his family and uh, has many nieces and nephews that have always needed a lot of support. And I can remember being maybe six or eight months into our relationship and we drove up to meet Biff's parents. And um, I saw Biff playing with, you know, his nephew who was two at the time. And I was like, oh, this is like someone I could have a family with. This is someone who knows how to be around kids, who is reliable and responsible and and thoughtful and and diplomatic. And and that two-year-old had a really hard family life. Biff's siblings have really struggled over the years. Um, and to watch him navigate all of that, such a complicated situation, really gracefully, I was like, oh my gosh, maybe this is something that I'd be willing to do. I never wanted kids. I never wanted to grow up. You know, I just didn't. Um, it seemed boring and like a lot of work. Um, and now that I'm a parent, I'm like, oh, it is boring and a lot of work, but it's, there's some other things there too. Um, yeah. So I think just casually, I was on like maybe a five-year track. He was more like on a 10-year track. Um, so it wasn't, you know, it was nothing serious um, until we got the phone call that two of those relatives who were little needed a, a home at least temporarily, and could we take them? Um, so that's when everything everything changed, and we really had to talk about kids. And you did, yeah. So 
Yep. What we, happened? We, yeah, we talked about it. I was like very pro, like, yes, we can we're gonna save these kids' lives. This is going to be amazing. Uh, they were one in three at the time. And and Biff was much more hesitant and was like, I don't think you know what we are getting into. He had spent a lot more time with kids in general and these kids specifically than I had. Um, and obviously he had spent a lot more time in the dysfunction of his family and knew this is not going to be straightforward. It's kind of like when people say like, well, you should just adopt to a couple experiencing infertility. It's like, you have no idea how complicated and nerve wracking and harrowing. And it, it it's so much more than you think it is from the outside. Um, so I was very optimistic, Biff less so, um, but we did finally decide it was the right thing to do. And we drove up and we picked them up and we became overnight parents to a one-year-old and a three-year-old who had been, who had had a really tough go of it before that. That is special. Um, my husband and I, we had two kids in Israel through IVF and then we came back to America and there was a five-year gap where I knew I wasn't done. I knew I wanted more children. Um, and we tried many things. But one of the things that we tried is to adopt from the foster care system. I tell you, it takes a special person to, I mean, even the training that we had to do, it was over a year. My husband was the altruistic person who was like, we have to take an older sibling unit. Like we're, we're going to do this for the right reasons. And I learned about myself. Like I just wanted a baby who I could mold into whatever it was I wanted without all that extra baggage. And of course, our kids all have stuff at the end of the day. I learned about through the process and I'm glad it took us that time, but I was not that special person. So kudos to you guys. Um, but you also did want to consider trying for a bio kid. So what did that look like? Yeah. I mean, once everything was done and that what that was a five-year process and, and our situation was unique in that we were able to sit down with, with um, Biff's sister and her partner at the time, her boyfriend at the time and kind of walk them through. We knew that they were really struggling. The kids were really not getting what they needed. And we were able to walk them through that and help them see the kids could come and stay with us, give them a little reprieve to get their lives together, maybe get sober, you know, that, that kind of a thing. And, and we had talked to their social worker um, and she had said, listen, if these kids go into the foster care system, they will be gone. Like you will, you will lose them. There's no possible way that you could become like certified foster parents through the system in time to catch them before they kind of get sort of lost in the shuffle. Um, and so she had said a much more effective route is going to be to work with their, you know, biological parents, see if there isn't something you can do informally between the four of you, which is what we did. Um, certainly if we had waited, I mean, one of them, like he had even our, our eldest, like he had been taken into emergency foster care because of a, a really awful situation that the police found him in. And they just put him right back in the family with no follow-up or anything. You know, it was just, it's just so, so hard. So anyway, it was, it was very complicated. Lots of court dates, cost us lots of money. Um, yeah, it was hard. And then our adoption went final. Um, and that is when I started thinking, you know, while I still have these eggs and this uterus, Although, I, the, you know, the uterus is good forever, but at least these eggs, you know, um, and these abs, I don't know. Um, 
is is having a biological child something that I want to consider? Um, what would it be like to form to you know to become to welcome a child into our family without it coming at the expense of someone else losing a child? Um, to have it be just a little cleaner in that way, you know, speaking to your point of how how complex it can be and how much baggage baggage comes along. Um, do I have any regrets about adopting my older kids? Of course not. And it was a really uniquely difficult experience. I was ready for a different kind of uniquely difficult experience, which is having a biological child. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't seem, it's not very common or there isn't a lot of awareness maybe to most people, but a transgender man having a child that's been happening for 20 years, this is not a big deal in the trans community. Um, and so it wasn't a big deal to me to consider it. I have known dozens of transgender men um, like me who've had given birth to children. Um, so it wasn't new to me. I went into the medical literature. I called my dad, who's a physician. Well, he's retired now. I said, dad, send me everything you've got on transgender pregnancy. Is it safe? Is it healthy? Is it advisable? I didn't want to take any risks with myself, with the potential future baby, certainly with my family. I didn't want to put anyone at risk. Um, and he was like, no, it's fine. It's in the medical literature, not risky at all. Stop your testosterone and you should be good to go. That's that's interesting for a few reasons. Number one, that you're able to have this conversation with your father. You said you're from small town, middle of. Mm-hmm. And so how were your how was your family when you decided to share the news that you guys were beginning this process? Well, yeah, my parents are Canadian. They moved to California when I was little, little. I was raised there and they've since retired back to Canada. So they they have that. It's not even like a, a, a liberalism uh, of Canadians. It's even more like a, I don't know, like a kind libertarianism. You know, it's much more, it really isn't my business what you're doing or what religion you are or how you're voting. You know, it's much more laissez-faire, much more um, easygoing, I guess. And, and that's certainly my dad embodies that, I think, more than anyone else in my family. It wasn't a surprise or a shock to him when I came out as transgender. He was like, okay, what's your new name? No problem. He didn't care. He's a, a doctor. He's treated trans patients. Um, my mom had, I think, more of her own journey. I think it it did feel a bit like a rejection of her as a woman. For me to transition, I'm more like physically like her than any of the other kids. I am even more personality wise, a little more like her than anyone else. I think she always see, saw herself in me. So me transitioning was sort of like, she really did feel like, what did she do wrong? Did she not teach me to love being a woman? Did she not do a good enough job as a feminist? You know, it, it took her a while to work through those pieces. She did finally. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of that struggle did come at my expense. You know, she did sort of subject me to a lot of those questions she was asking that in retrospect, she, she'll she tell parents of trans kids now, you get to have a struggle. You get to have a journey. It's not your kid's job to help you through that. Find someone else to talk to. And I'm like, cool. I wish someone had told you that when I was 22. Um, uh-huh. And so similarly, when I told, you know, I, I told my mom, that I was thinking about having a kid and she just thought that was the stupidest idea ever. She doesn't think anyone should have kids. There are so many kids in the world, you know, who need families. We'd already adopted two. Why would we need more? You know, it was not at all about me being trans. It was all about her political ideas about the environmental sustainability of our planet. Um, yeah. And so I think eventually I, 
you know, I did, I just sent her an email and said, we are now actively trying to conceive. Just want to be super clear with you. You know, we're not expecting anything extra or special from you. Um, I, we do a lot of email communication in my family because I'm, I'm in a relationship with a lot of people who don't like being put on the spot to have a certain emotional response. Biff is like that. My mom is like that, you know, so it was fine. And, and I did share with her, I had an, an early pregnancy loss and I did share that with her. And um, she shared with me that she had had a, a pregnancy loss as well before I was born. Um, yeah. So she was fine. And then my dad, I don't know, my parents are really weird. I don't want to say weird, they're really <laughs> unique. Like for yes. example, when our big kids came to live with us when they were one and three, maybe two weeks after they came to live with us, my parents flew down from Canada, rented a hotel close to our house and just helped for a full week, changing diapers, going on walks, going to the grocery store and bringing food, uh, fixing our floor to ceiling windows so that they were baby proofed, uh, getting better sheets for the bed, taking pictures and sending them to their friends, welcoming the new grandbabies into the family. Like there's no wow. sense mm-hmm. that biology dictated any, anything. They didn't prioritize my sister's kids that she gave birth. They, we just don't have that. It's not part of our family culture, I guess, which I imagine is uniquely strange, even like from the Jewish perspective, where that is even more, I think, of a powerful driver is, is having your own quote unquote children. Um, or it can be. Is that not true? I have one um, child who is not biologically related to us. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I don't think so. I think there's a lot of secrecy around what people are doing in terms of egg and sperm and embryo donation. Yeah. I'm very open about it. I don't think it, it's it's a have to, have to do within Judaism, but I think that there are some preferences in terms of the, you know, the genes and like, if it's Jewish versus, you know, not, um, I think there was like confusion with my, my third boy, because it's, he's not our anything, right? I carried him. And my dad was and we were trying to adopt for so many years before my dad was just so confused. He's Israeli. And he's like, well, what, like, what, is he going to, what is the kid going to be? Like, is he black? Is he white? Is he, cause we were like going to adopt, we didn't care. And so I'm like, no, he's actually, you know, from a, from a Jewish egg. And he actually looks like my other kids surprisingly, but um, my parents also have been just so awesome about not favoring. He's just part of our family. He's just our kid. Yes. Um, That's so cool. Um, yeah. So they just, you know, it never mattered to them. Um, and again, any concerns they had about me getting pregnant and having a child, they were not at all related to me being trans. Um, because by then, like I'd been trans for so many years, they'd already kind of gotten over that hump and they've known my friends who've had children and they've seen news stories and things like that. So yeah, wasn't, wasn't surprising. There wasn't anything like that with them. Thank goodness. Okay. So all you do is you you just stop the testosterone and then you find a great doctor. And I know you had one loss, but mm-hmm. what's happening? So you're doing regular IVF. No. Right. We, we all know. No. So tell me what you're doing. No IVF, no IUI, no nothing. You don't, I didn't need any of that. Um, in fact, that's true for the vast majority of transgender men who get pregnant and have children. Um, there's nothing different about with our anatomy than anyone else's. Unless 
we have a infertility, right? The same way as anybody else might. Right. Um, but we're not uh-huh. more or less likely to experience infertility. And I didn't. Yeah. And, and that, was, that was really our commitment between the two of us is, is it's not that we were ambivalent about having a child, but we wanted to open the door to it. So we just felt like we're going to remove the barriers, which was the testosterone. Um, and if a fetus walks through, metaphorically speaking, well, kind of literally speaking, if a fetus shows up, great. If not, we weren't going to undergo fertility treatment. That's just what we decided. We're not going to push it. We're just going to take the kids we have and run, you know? Um, so no, I just stopped testosterone. We kept doing what we were already doing in our intimate Understood. Life. Yes. Um, yeah. And I conceived, um, uh, had a er- very early pregnancy loss, for, you know, super early on after stopping my testosterone. Um, and then a few months later, pregnant, baby, Leo, that's it. Amazing. And how long did you have to be off the testosterone? You know, like birth control, they say you should be off a few months before you start trying or before things could start working. But even that, right, the sort of the myth of the washout period, as I'm sure you know, it's a myth. They like kind of think maybe it might take a little while, but also that there's that's not science. There's no actual evidence to show that anything magical happens in one month, two months, three months. The the rough. Now I run a trans fertility platform, right? So I'm a bit of a nerd about this. The rough estimate is sure. Wait until you have a couple of typical cycles, right? You're get you're menstruating meaning you're probably ovulating, we hope you are, then you can start trying. Um, but there's really no evidence to show that you need to wait a certain number of, of a certain amount of time. It usually takes about three months for it uh, for the cycle to come back. Some people longer, some people shorter. Um, but the best data we have of every transgender man in this one particular study who successfully conceived and carried a pregnancy um, they, their cycle return within six months of stopping testosterone. So I just tell people, if your cycle is not back within six months, see a doctor, there's something else going on, not related to the testosterone, but everything else, all of the data, all the studies, all the research shows beyond the testosterone stopping, everything else is going to be medically the same as any other pregnancy. So what do you find are the common misconceptions about fertility and then pregnancy for trans men? Like clearly I was like, oh, you did IVF. Like my, that is just, right? Totally. <laughs> I totally. went there. Yeah. Um, and some of it is hard to talk about because it does a little bit get into like our sex lives. And you know, anyone who's been through, through fertility treatment, like has to talk about their sex life. It's like, how many times are you trying? What way, you know, it's, so it is like a little, it veers a little bit into like what feels like voyeurism, but I think, yes, that's one of the stereotypes is that we don't have the type of intercourse that could result in a pregnancy. So we have to do something special. Right. And so that's like one misconception. The reality is that trans people have the same kinds of like rich and varied and dynamic intimate lives as anyone else. We're like into things or not into things. We can do things. We don't want to do things just like everybody else has preferences there. Um, but the really the number one misconception is that testosterone causes permanent sterility. Like that's just the biggest misconception. It, it has been for now decades. And I, I asked my dad, I said, why, why? And he said, I don't know. And, you know, he's a physician. So, I really pressed him on it, but like a doctor, he was like, well, I can't speak for other physicians. I don't know why other people are giving this information out when it's not true. 
Um, and I was like, well, just speculate. You know, doctors, they're not going to speculate. <laughs> they won't, they won't do it. Lawyers are the same, right? They just won't do it because um, they don't want to cause harm. But yeah, that's number one is if you've been on testosterone for any amount of time, you're going to be infertile. Not true. Never been true. It acts. It's a dose dependent ovulation suppressant, same as hormonal birth control. It stops ovulation from happening. It causes these other things too, but from that fertility, it stops it from happening. However, it does not seem to impact quality, quantity of eggs, health, uh, efficacy of the reproductive system, all of that. I would say the flip side is also true. So um, the other myth is that testosterone is birth control, that it will always prevent pregnancy. That's not necessarily true either. Same as with hormonal birth control. You skip a pill, it could happen, right? Um, yeah. And so those are those are two big misconceptions. I would say the third one is that we don't want to get pregnant because pregnancy is something that's associated with femininity. And I would say that's largely true. The vast majority of transgender men do not want to have babies. That that makes total sense. Um, do all of, are all of us in that camp? No, right? We get to have differences between us the same way as women get to have differences between you all, men get, uh, you know, non-trans men get to have differences. It's just differences of, of how we feel comfortable in our bodies. Well, let's talk about your mental health state. I guess you you do get pregnant. Yeah, we right. Lots of media attention around this. Where are you at mental health wise? You know, because there are changes in your body, hormones. How are you feeling throughout this process? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to piece everything apart, right? Because there's like the hormonal piece of going off of testosterone, having a miscarriage. I actually had to have a DNC. So like the, not all of the miscarriage material miscarried on its own. So I had to go into the hospital as outpatient. They were lovely, but I had to go in the hospital. They had to do basically, you know, a medical abortion um, yep. to remove the tissue. Cause that was my, like, you know, my self-deprecating joke was that my body couldn't even miscarry. Right. That was just my, me teasing myself. Um, but I was reassured by my medical team, by the nurses at the, um, uh, prenatal clinic, they're like, listen, this happens. You didn't do anything wrong. This isn't because you're trans. This isn't because you were in a bathtub that was too hot. Like whatever, you know, with this, I'm like, could it, could, did I do this? You know, I'm like, I went for a run because I didn't know I was pregnant. They're like, no, 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 none of that is real. That's in your head. <laughs> um, right. And in fact, because obviously you work with a lot of people who have experienced fertility challenges and fertility, I'll share like the nurse on the phone on the helpline, you know, I had like miscarried, but I just, I was like, I was just, I was still bleeding. And then it stopped and it started again. I was in church for God's sakes. And I'm like, I had to call the pastor aside and be like, do you have a menstrual pad? You know, it's just so embarrassing. And, and so I remember calling the nurse from the car outside the church and I was like, I'm, I'm bleeding again. What's going on? And, and she said to me, like, you can come in, come in today. We'll take your levels. We'll figure out what's going on. And like, Tristan, you just need to know that a miscarriage is actually not a failure. A miscarriage is what happens when your body understands that this pregnancy is not viable. And if it were, if the pregnancy were to continue, it could cause harm to your body. So you maybe couldn't carry kids in the future. So in a way, a, a miscarriage is actually a success. It's your body taking care of you. So you can get pregnant the next time. And so you can carry that baby to term and, and, and give birth next time. 
And that was, I'd never heard it. Like, have you heard this before? Is no. This was it actually helpful at the time? No, nothing was helpful. <laughs> no, <laughs> but I, it's beautiful, but yes. it, right. Was it actually helpful? Not helpful at the time, but um, afterwards, when I was trying to make meaning of a miscarriage and I wanted to make meaning of it in a different way than I was seeing happening my friends, my family, if I told anyone and I told very few people, cause number one, there's this idea that like, see trans people aren't supposed to have babies, you know, there's that, that kind of story, but then also people are so weird about pregnancy loss. They yeah. don't know what to do. They don't know where to put it. They don't know what to say. And then like, I felt like I had to hold that awkwardness for them. I don't want to do that. Like, I was just like throwing up everywhere and asking a pastor for a menstrual pad. I don't yeah. want to have to make you feel better about this. And the only thing that people knew what to do or say was, I'm sorry for your loss. Were you announcing pregnancy at that time? No, 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 no. no. We, I had, I had, I'm of the like, don't tell until the second trimester camp. Um, right. So it's already, already, <laughs> right. Like unexpected, I suppose. Yes. And then having to, Yeah. Yeah. So it was already like, yes, I was pregnant and I lost it. And like, please don't be weird about it. It's too much to ask people to do. Um, and so, yes, in retrospect, when I was looking back, trying to make meaning of it, I didn't see it as the loss of a baby, like my own conception of where life begins and what a pregnancy is and what a fetus is and what a 12 week old zygote or like blastocyst. Like, I, I don't know. It was, it's when people say like, I'm sorry for your loss. What am I going to say? I don't actually see it as a loss. Well, that makes it even more awkward, you know? So in retrospect, looking back on it, I remembered those words. And particularly as a trans person, having, you know, feeling like my body is, you know, I've, I've have a complicated relationship with my body that it really was very soothing afterwards. And I think about that a lot, that that really was the right thing to say. Um, she was able to hold how hard things were and offer me a new perspective. Um, yeah, so- that was the, that was the loss. <laughs> I appreciate that. And it definitely is part of our community, our joint communities as well. Um, so how soon after were you able to get pregnant again? Uh, we did decide to wait. Um, not because again, there's that myth of if you have a loss, you should quote unquote, wait three months. Again, that's not science. There's no evidence on that. That's just one of the things that people thought, well, I don't know, that sounds good, but it's, there's nothing there in terms of a, an evidence base for that. Um, but we did decide to wait just because our lives got really hectic around that time. So we want to just wait till things cool down, get back in a healthy groove. Um, and then I think maybe three months afterwards, we started trying again. I think we had three months of not being successful. Um, so maybe six months later, I got pregnant again. So you get pregnant. And how are your kids dealing with this pregnancy? Were you open with that? Um Throughout, I mean, how old are they at this point? Um, at that point, I don't know. They're like seven and nine. Not good at okay, math. so still a little, right. you know, oblivious, but can know enough. And then all of a sudden, what do they call you? Um, I'm that, daddy. Biff is daddy. Dada. Okay, so um, daddy. But not all of a sudden. Um, okay. So we had been talking with them in a developmentally appropriate way that like we are thinking about making you all big siblings. And we are thinking about having... Uh, you know, having a child that daddy would carry and dada would be the other parent of that child, um, just like, and then we would name some of our friends that they knew who had kids who are trans. 
Um, and so we wanted to kind of get all their feelings out before it was a reality. And then we didn't tell them until the second trimester. Same, same thing as for other people. Um, and that ended up being a great decision because I don't know how a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old can really conceive of a pregnancy loss. Other people, I think, have been able to navigate with that with their kids. That's great. For us, it felt like um, it would not have been appropriate to put that on them, given how difficult their lives have already been. So yeah, second trimester, we sat them down. We popped the apple, the sparkling cider uh, (laughs) (laughs) bottle, and we told them. And one was very excited, and one was quite distressed, uh, which is pretty much the dynamic of us and these kids anyway. Um, Yeah, and so they came to get used to it. So now let's switch gears a little bit. What is it like to be a pregnant man in America? I mean, for you, it's probably normal, right? You've seen this before. It's part of your world. It's part of your community. Clearly, you got some media attention because it's not part of my everyday life. What was that like? What was it like for your family just experiencing all of this? Why you? Why were you so special to get? What, were you on Oprah? No, that was that. No, that was Thomas. That was uh, Thomas. You were people, people, people magazine. Yeah, I worked with people. That's that's pretty. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I worked with people on telling the story, CNN, Washington Post. I was pretty selective about who I wanted to work with um, because I have the the experience and how to tell a story responsibly. I understand what some of the most common misconceptions are, and I can teach a a reputable journalist how to avoid some of those pitfalls proactively. Um, Not not every outlet was interested in telling the story responsibly, and I didn't partner with those outlets. Um, But I I don't know why me. I mean, there are truly hundreds, maybe thousands of transgender men all over the world who've gotten pregnant and given birth. And a couple of them, they've kind of cropped up on like, you know, again, some of the disreputable outlets I don't even want to name. Um, But in terms of the sort of mainstream saturation, I don't know. I don't think there's anything different or special about me. It could have been a right place, right time situation. It, It could have been because we're already parents. There is something about our story that really, I think, subverts the myth that maybe trans people have children like to make a point you know, you know what I mean? Like, we're just trying to mess with you by messing with gender. No, we have kids. We take parenting very seriously. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It was, it was very strange. Um, my kids were completely shielded from it. We didn't let them do any interviews. A lot of outlets wanted to interview them. No, they're too young. It would not be responsible of us to let that happen. Um, yeah, and it was really awful. Uh, it was not as awful for Biff. Um, Biff had a much harder upbringing than I did. Um, Biff knows how awful people can be. I was a little bit more sheltered by my nice parents. <laughs> um, so yeah, that part was was really bad. And often trans people will come to me and say, I want to tell my story. Can you like help coach me through it? Um, and I'm like, yeah, the biggest piece of advice I have is do not do, not do this. Don't do it. It will wreck you. Um, and they never listen to me and it always does. <laughs> um, and I guess going back to the pregnancy for a second, you know, yeah. were what was it like with doctors? I mean, you where were you living at the time that you were seeking medical care? Like, what was it like working with people who might not have seen this every single day? Yeah, so we're in Portland, and the mm-hmm. stereotypes definitely hold true um, that it is a more open, accepting 
place. It really is. Um, I definitely have some other things that that make that even more true for me as a white person, um, as a transgender man and not a transgender woman. You know, there's a little bit less, um, I think, bias there that I will experience when I work with doctors. Um, also, this is my job, like telling my story, advocating for others, changing. That's my literal job. Like you talked about Keshet is coming to do a training. Like that's, that's what I do. I, I do what they do. I train people on this. So even when I had a provider who said it or did something that I'm like, oh, that's not really great. Um, I have no problem just saying, mm, I, I, I want to answer that question. I, I'm going to ask you to presented in a different way. I love and that. Yeah. You know, so I had no problem coaching them. That's my job. Should I have had to do that while also being pregnant? Probably not, but you know, oh, well. <laughs> it's who you are. So you have a baby. Yeah. Yes. How, old, how old now? He turned six last week. Ah, that's so big. Six years old. That's amazing. Um, that's amazing. And what have you been doing since since this beautiful miracle? What? Do you, how do you spend your, your time? How do you spend your time educating? You've been doing a lot of amazing work. Tell us what you've been up to. Yeah, I mean, I've really been, you know, I've, I've really been investing in working with researchers um, to make sure that for example, transgender people are included when we're talking about how COVID and COVID vaccines are impacting people who are pregnant, for example. Um, I want to make sure that I want to expand our thinking about transgender fertility. Um, we know very, very, very little about how um, transition affects transgender women. So people whose bodies have produced sperm in the past, like what is what do hormones do with that? Um, there's very little we know there. So I do a lot of advocacy and partnership with researchers. Um, I do a lot of work training medical clinics, fertility clinics and centers, reproductive endocrinologists, embryologists. Um, I was just in Orlando working with uh, Cryos, uh, the cryo International Cryobank. I got to see the big vats where they store the gametes. And that was amazing. It was so cool. Um, so I've just found a, I've just tried to find a way to put my energy and excitement and nerdiness about fertility uh, to hopefully make things a little bit easier for the next generation of trans folks who come along and, and want to build their families. What, are, what can you share with organizations like ours who are just entering the space, really trying to help people in any way grow their families. What do I, aside from the training part, I know we need to know just how to communicate better or more openly to everybody, like the basics, like website and all of that. What are the things that you wish you could tell me? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's like, I just, I just did a full website audit of a fertility center in the Northeast. Um, and I think that's number one is the fertility, the world of fertility is so gendered, even in the subset of LGBTQ fertility, but there are best practices. So I think get an understanding of what those best practices are. Like usually I'll audit a whole website that I'll meet with the marketing and communications team. And I can tell them, here's a more inclusive way to say this that isn't losing the medical accuracy and the accessibility. You want people to understand what they are actually reading or hearing. Um, but I think number two is just that attitude of humility. Not every LGBTQ plus person is alike. And what works for one person isn't going to work for other people. And I think there's such that desire to get it right, you know, um, and to be right. And they're like, well, just tell me, like, what, how, what do I say so that the fewest number of people are angry at me? And that's just not the best approach. 
you know, understanding we're going to do our best. We're going to implement best practices and we're going to learn. We're going to ask for feedback. We're going to say, I'm sorry. Um, and to have that willingness to partner with people or to not even just say, I'm sorry, but to say, I hear you. And what, what you, your preference is your preference. It's not actually best practice. So we're not going to change our entire website because you don't like one word because you have a complicated relationship to that one word, right? You know, there, there's that, that, that kind of relationship you should think about having with, with the community and people are going to get angry. We're, we're hurt people. The world is not kind to us. Um, so that means we sometimes as trans people show up, you know, we could be a little prickly. Um, and it's not my job to tell people how to express their, their anger or frustration. It's just my job to tell you all that they might get angry or frustrated. And that's, that's okay. That's helpful. I want to know these things. I know I can't always make everybody happy, but we can absolutely, you know, do our best to try and do our best to make sure people don't feel left out. And especially if we're trying to help everybody. Um, awesome. Okay. What else, what else do we miss? What else do you want to share about, about your story or transparenthood? I don't think much. Um, you know, I just think ultimately that anyone who gets pregnant wants basically the same things, right? We want to be safe. We want to be healthy. We want to be happy. We want to have a community celebrating our, what's, you know, what we're going through and welcoming a child into the world. We don't want people to be too icky curious, right? You don't want someone to be like, well, I thought you were experiencing infertility. How did this happen? Well, that's not great. <laughs> Right. Um, it's like, it's like, really, I don't, I mean, I was so quiet for my first two children or trying to have my first children. I was, it was a secret. Like, I didn't even know how to talk about my sex life to my parents or why I would or what I was going through or how hard it was with my husband. It was secretive. Yeah. Um, later, I'm an open book, but um, yeah, it's nobody's business. And and it's also not usually the most interesting or exciting part of a pregnancy is like, how did it happen? <laughs> yeah. You know, those kinds of questions right. are like, oh, ask me something better, you know? Um, like, what are you all thinking about for names? What are you missing that I could help provide? Are you open to advice on sleep training? Because sleep training was very hard for us. Well, I would love to mm -hmm. like give you some information if you need it. But if not, that's okay too. I'm not going to butt in and give you advice that you don't want or need. You know, there's... There's so many other cool things to talk about. Like what is the coolest part about being pregnant? What's the hardest part about being pregnant? Because those are, those are pretty universal experience. I just got a DM from a stranger on Facebook and he messaged me and he's like, I'm a transgender man in the South. I'm pregnant. This sucks. Why did you lead me to believe that pregnancy <laughs> was going to be beautiful? And I'm like, brother, I'm so sorry where you, I don't know where you got my idea from. I did. I feel like I openly talked about that. There are great parts and there are not so great parts of growing a whole ass human inside of your yep. torso. Like I thought I was honest. I am so sorry. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's like in the infertility world, people are like, we worked so hard as I'm sure you did everybody. You worked so hard to have this kid and now it's a kid and you're a parent and you have the same crap that everybody else has, but there's this like guilt feeling like everything's supposed to be perfect or you're not supposed to complain or I, it's a yucky feeling. So, and I think it's reinforced externally as well, because I feel like whether you're a trans person who's had to work to have a child or someone who's been through infertility, who's had to work the second you're like, oh my God, this baby will not sleep. Everyone around you is like, well, this is what you signed up for. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, what did you think was going to happen? 
It's like, well, why, why don't I get to complain and vent and troubleshoot and ask for help? And, you know, there is that weird judgment. If you're not, as you'd said, like a hundred percent happy all the time. No, I, I wanted no. this. Yes. I worked for it. Yes. And, oh my God, I would do anything to sleep right now. Uh-huh. Well, Tristan, this has been awesome. Yeah. Thank you. So I much feel just, me. you're great and open and I'm really, really appreciative. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? Oh, well, I left all public social media, which has been amazing. Okay. Um, so I guess they could go to TristanReese.com. Um, great. They could read my book. I wrote a book called How We Do Family. Um, yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for everything and for your time. Of course. Thank you. Have a great rest of your week. Woo! I have one more request, so stay on the line. Thanks for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Fruitful and Multiplying. And as always, reach out with more podcast ideas and feedback. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Jewish Fertility Foundation.